Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to, uh, to be with you once again. <clears throat> and uh, please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us a word that is living, a word that is active, a word that endures, that stands forever. It is this word that we have had preached to us. It is this word upon which we have placed our hope because from this word we learn about our true condition apart from your grace, mercy, and loving kindness. And so we ask, Lord God, that as we come to you now, you would speak to us uh, from your word, that your spirit, whom you have given to us to under, help us understand your word, would indeed open our hearts, not only to, to hear it, to know it, but also to apply it. And uh, I'm reminded, O oh Lord, of, of the old prayer that says, Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. This we ask that you would do because you are a good and holy and gracious God. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue today our, our study of the, the three tools that God gave us to follow Christ. Last week we looked at hope, uh, that was in verses 13 to 21. Today we'll look at truth, or uh, as it's also known by the gospel, and then next week we'll finish our study of these tools by looking at the church uh, starting uh, further into chapter 2. I remember I said last week that when, when God gave us everything we need to follow Jesus Christ, he gave us everything we need to maintain a lifelong relationship with Christ. And that faithfulness to Jesus flows out of faith in Jesus, and that this faith relies on hope to help us keep following Jesus until we see him face to face. This hope that he gives to us is rooted and it's grounded in the gospel, and therefore it needs to be nurtured, it needs to be nourished, and it needs to be strengthened from what Peter says here by a continual obedience to the gospel. Let me explain what I mean by that. Like many of you throughout this uh, past couple of years and maybe recently, Jill and I have been uh, having you know, just this ongoing battle with uh, COVID-related health issues. So in December, uh, our, our sister-in-law sent us a three-month supply of uh, multivitamins uh, to help strengthen our immune system. So true confession, I am not a vitamin-taking guy, but... Since I've been taking these multivitamins, I can say that my health is better. My immune system is a little stronger. So that got me thinking that if, if multivitamins can strengthen my immune system, can the same thing be done and said for my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes, that our, our hope in Jesus much in the same way that my health depends on taking you know, multivitamins, our hope in Jesus requires a daily dose of obedience to the truth. That our hope in Jesus Christ requires a daily obedience to maintain its health, its vitality, and its strength. And that really is the big idea for this morning's message. That our hope in Jesus is strengthened by daily obedience to the truth. And since the truth the way that Peter uses it here, and it appears throughout the entire uh, Bible, in fact, the New Testament specifically, by the truth we also can say the gospel. So that it follows that a daily obedience to the gospel 
fortifies our hope in Christ and that our hope in Jesus grows stronger through daily obedience to the gospel. And so I've outlined for you how we're going to uh, work through the, the text for this morning, that because our hope in Jesus is strengthened by daily obedience to the truth, obedience to the truth requires learning a new way to live, it requires rejecting our old way of life, and it is revealed by a growing desire for more of it. So it requires a new way to live, requires rejecting our old way of life, and it is revealed, an obedience to the truth, it's revealed by a growing desire for more of it. So let's look at the, the first one. So the obedience to the truth requires learning a, a new way to live, a, a new lifestyle. In verses 22 to 23, um, Peter says, following what he's uh, already said in verse uh, 13 to 21, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 22, the way that Peter has written it here, is a summary of the gospel. That when God caused us to be born again, he forgave our sins. Our sins, which previously had stained our soul, our our soul, rather, which was previously stained by sin, is purified. It's made clean by the blood of Christ. All this is a result, says Peter, of having been chosen. Going back to verse uh, 1 of chapter 1. All of this is a result of having been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus Christ is obedience to the gospel. It's obedience to the truth. That's why we have been saved. That's why we have been chosen to experience the, the work of God in our lives as we follow Jesus. And obedience to the truth then requires that we learn a new way to live that is different from the way that we used to live prior to coming into a relationship with God. It requires a new way to live as part of a new community that God has brought us into as a result of choosing us according to his foreknowledge and the holiness of the Spirit and all of that. So in addition to teaching us how to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, obedience to the truth also means practicing, from what Peter says here, a brotherly love so that we will love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And this love that Peter talks about here he says, has several qualities that are worth paying attention to and putting into practice and learning more of. This love, he says, treats others as more important than ourselves. Because the, the word that he uses here, it's a command, actually. It's a, the, the noun in Greek is the word agape. The verb is agapao. So he's commanding them to love, and agape is a love that is always focused on the other. It's not a selfish love, it's a selfless love. It's a love that gives and is concerned about the welfare and the well-being of others. It's the love that God shows by giving us his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So this love is not self-centered, but it is centered on others. That's primary. This love is also sincere. 
meaning that it's genuine, it's, it's authentic, it's without pretense, it's honest, it's transparent, there's no hypocrisy in this love. It's not the kind of love where, you know, in public you put on a face, hey, how you doing? And as soon as you leave, you're like, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, you're, you, you love the person genuinely when they're in front of you, and you love them when they're not in front of you. Because it's sincere, it's genuine, it's honest. It's also brotherly. Now, this is a tricky one because obviously the, the word here is a familiar word, Philadelphia, Philadelphos. It's a brotherly love. It's a love that should exist between siblings and a family. And if you are uh, not an only child and you have siblings, you know that it's not always practiced in families. Um, you know, my, my, yeah, my son, the test engineer, broke things. So did my, my, uh, my daughter, the opera singer, broke things, particularly things that my son, the engineer, built. And there's a, a tension there. But within a family, there's, there's also this desire to be knitted together through a sibling, a, a familial, a brotherly, a sisterly kind of love. It's that kind of love that Peter wants us to experience and to practice. It's an earnest love. It's a love that he says we should practice earnestly. It's constant. It's eager to persevere. In fact, it's a love that never quits. Parents know about this kind of love, particularly when dealing with truculent children or wayward children. You never quit loving your child, no matter how distant or far apart they are from you. You love them because they are your child. We are to love one another, says Peter, because we have been brought into a relationship with God the Father through God the Son, sealed with the Spirit so that we can love one another in this way. What a blessing it is to be loved like this. And then lastly, he says it's, it's love that flows from a, a pure heart. It's undiluted. It's honest. It's transparent. It's without condition. Love from a pure heart, in other words, has no hidden agenda, has no ulterior motive, has no strings attached. It's not the kind of love where you sidle up to somebody or someone sidles up to you in the hope that you'll give them a reference for a job or that you'll hire them for something or that you'll somehow give them an in. It's a love that, again, is other-directed. It finds joy in expressing itself without expectation of anything coming back. That's a hard kind of love. And the only way that we can show that love is if we understand that that's how God has loved us. That's part of this new way to live because we have grown up in a culture that says you give in order to get. And we at times will treat our relationship with God like a business deal. I'll give God so much time. I'll give God so much money. I'll give God so much devotion. And I expect that he will at some point pay me back. I'll give you so much money. I'll give you so much time. I'll give you so much commitment. And in return, I expect something back from you. That's the way the world works, says Peter. That's the way we used to operate apart from the grace of God in Christ. But now no longer. We give selflessly. We give without concern or thought about being paid back. Because the debt that we owe to God is one that we could never repay. So we ought not in any way expect repayment for the love, the mercy, the grace that we show to others. 
That's how we imitate Christ. That's how we follow him. That's how we practice obedience to him. This kind of love, then, is it's critical to Christian community. Because, remember, according to Jesus, love is the birthmark of everyone who claims to be a follower of him. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, on the night that he is about to be handed over to the hands of sinful men and eventually through a a trial be crucified, he tells the apostles, and Peter is there when Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So Peter is speaking from the experience of having heard Jesus not only say these words, but demonstrate a love that is other-directed other and other-focused. Jesus has demonstrated a love that is sincere and genuine and without hypocrisy. He has demonstrated a love that is brotherly. Jesus at one point says, I call you friends because now friends know what another friend is doing. It's a love that Jesus shows to be earnest. It never quits. Even as Jesus is dying on the cross, remember, he looks at John, he looks at his mother Mary and says, woman, behold your son. And he tells John, behold your mother. So it's, it's always, Jesus is always focused on calling forth and commanding us to love one another because he himself is the ultimate expression of that love. And it's certainly love that flows from a pure heart. It has no condition. We respond to the love of Christ because it has no agenda other than enveloping and wrapping us up in the love, grace, mercy of God, which a cold-hearted world is loath to give without cost, but always asks and demands something in return. Jesus says, all I want from you is you, your devotion, your obedience. I want... Your mind, I want your heart, I want your very being to be mine and to walk and to live in fellowship with me and then to live in fellowship with others. God caused us to be born again by our obedience to the truth so that we would have this sincere brotherly love and then love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, what does this this look like? In a humorous way... (laughs) Uh, when my mother, um, I remember when my mother was in the sort of the last throes of uh, her pancreatic cancer, my, my brother and I uh, both went to our, our house uh, on Long Island where we grew up. And uh, my mother was very concerned. My brother is six years older than I am. And my mother was always good. Parents know about this. Uh, my mother was always good at what Jill and I call parental algebra. You know parental algebra? What you do for one child? You make sure you do for the other. And my mother was very concerned that my brother and I would continue to be harmonious and loving. And so she said, I just want one thing for you and your brother. That you should love each other and not fight. That's, in a sense, what Peter is saying here. It's a a love that prays for one another and encourages one another. We have been the recipients of this, certainly, over these last few months where people have been consistently and persistently telling us and praying for for Jill and me and 
and, uh, and for our, our health and well-being. It's a love that is, as James would say, is quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's a love that works diligently at confessing sin, first to God and then to a brother or sister whom we have offended. And at the same time, it's the kind of love that goes to a brother or a sister who has offended us without their knowledge of having offended us. And so we go to them in love and we say, what you said hurt and was disrespectful. And I just want you to know, I forgive you, but you need to know that. It's a love that asks for forgiveness. It's a love that shows forgiveness. It's, it's a love that speaks the truth without pretense, without hypocrisy. It's genuine. It's a love that, it, that motivates us to care for one another, again, without expectation of return or reward. It's, John talks about this in 1 John, sharing with those in need out of the, out of the blessings that God has given to us. And, and even if we don't have much, we still, can sh- we still can share, whether it's materially or by our own presence. Sometimes when, when a brother or sister is going through a very difficult, trying time, the best gift that you can give to that person, particularly in a time of grief or illness, is your presence. Not to say anything. Just be there. That's love. Because you, at that moment, you're giving your time and you're giving your silence. That's a gift. Because you're not expecting anything from that person. You're just being there for them. When they're ready to talk, they'll talk. Just being there. My, my father, when he was uh, dying uh, from uh, cancer, one of our next door neighbors would come by and watch him. He was retired. He'd, he'd stay with my dad while my mother worked. And my dad, because of medication and things like that, he would doze off in his... Uh, lazy boy watching TV, and he would wake up, and he, you know, Ralph was right there. He says, geez, Ralph, I'm sorry, I, I fell asleep. And, and Ralph would say, that's okay, Tony. I'm just, I'm here if you need me. That kind of presence, that kind of love is what Peter is talking about here. Our love for one another, then, says Peter, should be as vibrant and as enduring as is the very word of God. That's why he, he says, uh, what he says in verses 23 to 25 Right? He says, this imperishable seed that has caused us to be born again, he then quotes from Isaiah 40, which we read in, at length. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord in, remains or endures or abides forever. And then, as if to sort of put an exclamation point on it, Peter says, and this is the word. This is the good news that was preached to you. The imperishable seed is none other than the gospel. It is the tool by which God caused us to be born again. Because what Peter says here is in complete agreement with what Paul says in Romans 10, 14 through 17, that faith comes by hearing and, uh, and, and hearing through the word of Christ. That the only way we can become aware of our need for Christ is becoming aware of our, need for, uh, of our need for salvation and redemption. It's the gospel that awakens within us the fact that we are sinners, separated from God because of our sinfulness, and that God has repaired that breach. That where we think it's a matter of us reaching up to him 
and, and sort of pull him down to where we are. God says, I've already come down to where you are. I have come down to you in the person of my son. He has borne all of your iniquity, all of your infirmities. He has borne all of your griefs and all of your sorrows. And guess, on top of all of that, he loves you. This is what Peter reminds us of here. It's the, an example of this is in the Bible in terms of how the gospel just brings us to the sense. In, in Acts 16, there's a woman named Lydia, a businesswoman named Lydia. And she goes to the river to hear Paul preach the gospel. And, and it says there in Acts 16 that as Paul was preaching, the Lord opened her heart to receive what Paul said. She ends up giving her heart to Christ, confessing faith in him, and she is later baptized. This gospel has that much power, says Peter, to change hearts. And in changing hearts, changes minds. And in changing minds, changes our attitude and changes our, the, the way that we live. By referring to the gospel as the living and enduring or the living and abiding word of God, Peter is declaring two truths at once. It's a living word. In other words, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It will never lose that power. We live in an age, and I'm very grateful that at Maranatha, we haven't fallen into line with this kind of thinking, that somehow we need to add something to the gospel. We need to let a little oomph, a little more light, a little more smoke, a little more... I don't know what it is, a little je ne sais quoi, as Don Carson would say. A little I don't know what. Right? If you're an Austin Powers fan. Peter says the word is powerful in and of itself. Especially when it is communicated by someone who is loving the person you're sharing it with earnestly from a pure heart. A love that is genuine and honest and clean and pure. It's a living word that gives life always. And it's an enduring word. Meaning that the gospel will never lose its power, never lose its relevance. We try to sort of shoehorn the gospel into a mode of, of presentation that somehow seems more more hipsterish than biblical. But Peter says, trust the fact that God's word is powerful enough to change hearts, change minds, and open people's understanding to who Jesus is. This is why he quotes Isaiah 40. Because the word of the Lord endures forever means that the gospel is eternally relevant because it's an eternal word. I remember years ago listening to a lecture by one of my theology professors, and he made this point that you were never more relevant than when you were preaching an eternal gospel. Because whether te whatever, whatever technology is on the horizon, whatever social uproar there is, one thing is true. Every human being on the planet is dead in their trespasses and sins and held captive to the prince of the power of the air. 
And the only way that those captives, the only way that we were released from our captivity to the prince of the power of the air, the only way that we were made alive, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, is because someone had the love of God enough in them to say to us, you're a sinner, here's a savior. Let me introduce you to him. Because he can change your life. He can transform you and change you and make you into the person that you truly need to be. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's a powerful word. By quoting Isaiah, Peter is also reminding us the fact that it's living and enduring. That no nation, no individual, no government, regardless of its strength, regardless of how long it's existed on the face of the earth, nothing and no one can keep God from keeping his promises. God makes that promise in Isaiah 55. My word goes forth from my mouth, will not return to me void unless and until it accomplishes the purpose for which I send it, to convict sinners of their sin and lead them to righteousness, or to drive those who are resistant to grace further into the darkness. So the word of God is able to draw into the light those whom he has chosen and drive further from the light those who would continue to resist his grace. That's the kind of word we preach. It's interesting, too, that Isaiah 40 starts with this amazing word of comfort to the people of Israel. It begins with good news, that God will pardon Israel's iniquity and that he will deliver them from exile. This this is good news on two fronts. God will pardon the iniquity of his people and he will deliver them from their captivity. That despite the apparent strength of Babylon and the other nations, they are like grass and the flower of grass that will wither and fall when the word of the Lord blows upon them. Now, how does that work for us? How does that work for Peter's audience? How does that work for us in 2023? It works like this. The promise that God made to Isaiah is the promise that he has kept through the gospel. The gospel that... Isaiah preaches is the same gospel that God preached to Abraham way back in Genesis 17, 5, when God promised Abraham, I will make you a father of multitudes. Guess who is part of that multitude? You and I, by reason of God's grace, mercy, and preaching of the gospel. He pardoned our iniquity. He has delivered us from our exile from him and now has brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he is leading us through this wilderness to our inheritance which is kept for us who are guarded and protected by God's power. This is what Peter meant back in verse 12 of chapter 1 when he talked about that when the prophets including Isaiah, were making all of these predictions about the coming of the Messiah and about God saving his people and pulling them together. That they were serving not themselves, but we who now come to inherit those promises. They which could only see them in anticipation, we get to experience them. So to a, a person who is going through challenging times, as were some of Peter's readers, as are some of us, to a varying degree, whatever that may be, understand that even in the midst of that, God is holding you firm with a living and enduring word, and he will not let go. This obedience to the truth 
produces a kind of life like that. It's a new way to live. And it requires, says Peter, rejecting then the old way of life. Before, just another thing too. The idea then that we are inheritors of these promises also propels us into mission. Because who else is out there that God wants to bring into his family? So the idea that we have been chosen doesn't inhibit mission, doesn't inhibit evangelism. It promotes it. Because we who have experienced grace, who have tasted the goodness of the Lord, we want others to experience and taste that same goodness. And so we share with them and trusting the power of God's word and the power of his Holy Spirit to awaken and to open their hearts to understand who God is. And that requires rejecting our old way of life, says Peter. So in light of all of this, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I think what Peter is doing here is he's reaching back into the gospel of Matthew. And he's remembering two things that Jesus said about the heart. In Matthew 15, Jesus is talking to uh, uh, the Pharisees, talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees are concerned about dietary laws and what goes into the mouth being holy and all of that. So you're not defiled by eating food washed with dirty hands or, or unclean food, so to speak. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And Peter, like most of us, when we hear and read what Jesus says, we're kind of like, what do you mean by that, Jesus? Like, I, I, don't, I don't quite understand what you're getting at. And then Jesus answers Peter and says, don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And earlier on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, out of the abundance or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Peter commands us to put away these old practices because they destroy the love that is to exist within the community and among God's people. They flow out of a heart these sins, that they flow out of a heart that is impure, that is selfish, and that is unholy. These are sins that would shred the social fabric of a church. They dissolve the love that binds us together, and so forth. They are, they are to be ruthlessly, ruthlessly rooted out and removed. Malice, or in some translations, have evil. Uh, those of you who are of a younger kind of mind will appreciate the Greek word for evil here, kakia. Exactly the way it sounds. And, it, and the image is the same. Kakia. It's evil. It's malice. It destroys the harmony. How do you counteract that? How do you put that away? You do good. Paul talks about overcoming evil with good. You do good as you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good. Deceit and hypocrisy, they seriously under, undermine sincere brotherly love. Both of them can inflict serious damage on trust that is necessary for healthy relationships. So how do you counteract that? How do you put that away? You're honest. You're not deceitful. You tell the truth. You do the truth. 
You say what you mean, you mean what you say. Envy. Envy is tough. And it's sleeky. That's a combination of sneaky and slippery. It's sleeky. Think of the serpent in the garden, right? It destroys love because instead of causing us to desire what's best for others, envy, well, it can cause us to hope for the downfall of others. It may even promote us to actively undertake for their downfall. Another thing about envy is it's not just simply um, being jealous of what someone has, but it's actively thinking they don't deserve it and I do. So it's deadly. So how do you practice, how do you kill envy? Well, prayer is, is a good start. Prayer in particular for the person of whom you're envious. Prayer for their well-being. Maybe do something nice for them. And then, of course, there is slander, right? It's more than just spreading false stories. It's criticizing that person either behind their back or, or in public. Love, says Peter, is the appropriate response of someone who has been born again because love is the opposite of all these things. Why? The answer is in 1 Corinthians 13. Because love is patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails. So these are the, 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 the things that we are called, not just at one time, it's like there, I remember as a young Christian proudly telling the, the guys in my university group, well, I finished reading the Bible. And they all looked at me like, are you starting over again? It's like, oh I, oh, I have to do that. Yes, because it's not a matter of just reading it once. It's not like a novel or any other book. Just read it, put it back on the shelf. No, you've got to read it every day. The same thing. These sins that Peter talks about here have to be put away every day. In the same way that we shower or we prepare ourselves by putting on new clothes, by removing the dirty laundry and dirty linen of the day before, we remove these things and we put on every day the garment of righteousness that Christ has clothed us with. <laughs> My tongue got in the way of everything there. Put on the righteousness that Christ has clothed us with. There you go. So believers must put away these sins daily by daily obedience to the truth. In, uh, in previous generations, there was an old-fashioned word for this. And it should come back in fashion because it really is good. It's the mortification of sin. It's the putting to death of sin. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by the Puritan John Owen. And the way to deal with sin, says Owen, is this. You be killing sin or sin will be killing you. How do you do that? Peter says you crave, you desire, you long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word. Because you put, away in, you put away those sins by craving that which is holy, good, and pure. 
So obedience to the truth then, new way to live, rejecting our old way of life, and then it is proven, it is revealed by a desire for more of it. Peter says in verse uh, 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, Peter is not saying here, but when he says like newborn infants, he's not implying that he's dealing with a bunch of newbies, if you will, that they're necessarily new converts to Christ. He's simply making the comparison that in the same way uh, an infant longs for the nourishment that comes from his or her mother's milk, we are to long for and crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word. So maybe a modern comparison is, what is when you wake up in the morning after you take care of your daily routine, what's the first, some of us, right, we can't function until what? We have the first cup of coffee or we have the first cup of tea and you wake up and you're craving that cup of coffee, right? You're craving that moment of exercise. You're craving that thing that's somehow going to get you started on your day. Peter says, attack God's word with that same kind of desire. It's a pure word because it's undiluted. And the word spiritual is interesting because it does double duty. On the one hand, it's spiritual because it is spiritually discerned. It is only through the help of the Holy Spirit that we understand what God says through his word. But the word that Peter uses is an interesting one. In Greek, it's logikos, which means both spiritual, but it's also a word that is rational, a word that is logical, a word that is sensible. In other words, it's a word that is not so mysterious, so spiritual that we, we cannot completely understand it, but it is one that also appeals to the mind as well as the heart. It's a word that transforms our mind by the renewing of our mind that allows us to, to see deeply into the character and nature of God as well as our own character, as well as the character of the world around us, and allows us to make sense of it as much as we can with God's help. And it's designed to do this so that we would grow up to salvation, that we would mature, not only continually as we follow Christ, but ultimately inherit the inheritance that is kept for us. Now, the question always arises when you talk about craving and longing for God's word. Well, how much time should I spend doing that, pastor? And my question is, I don't know. How much time do you spend online? How much time do you spend doing other stuff outside of work? You know, we, I was talking with a brother earlier this week, and he said, I, I, you know, I'm known for getting up early. I take no credit for that in terms of like a hallmark. I did that because when our kids were younger, if I didn't get up before them, my day was shot in terms of having any time to spend with God. So I would get up at five because my son would wake up at six. I didn't want to get up at five because I am by nature a night person. I like staying up till 11.30, midnight or one o'clock, reading or watching television. But I had to train myself, nope, if I want to go, I want to get up early, I got to go to bed early. Whatever time is necessary for you to connect with God is the time that you establish to connect with God. It could be 15 minutes. It could be 20 minutes. It could be on the run between children's naps. It could be an audio Bible. It, but somehow, you set aside the time 
to get God's word in your head and in your heart. Maybe read it with another brother or sister. Do it online. Zoom is a wonderful thing. Do it over the phone. Do it face to face. But the thing is, do it that way. Just do it. And allow, allow the word to refresh and replenish. I think I've shared the story before of, of memorizing scripture with two other brothers in seminary. You know, and, and you know, I chose very humbly Psalm 37. Okay, that's pretty small. And these two guys, they were giants. So I'll take Philippians. I'll take Romans. This other guy said. And I'm there with my, you know, my measly like 30 verses. They're like the whole book. But what was amazing is when we'd meet together on Friday afternoon, no matter how rotten or stressful our week was, two of us would open our Bible and the other brother would begin reciting from memory what he had memorized. And when I, we went around the table. And it was, the more we did it, it was suddenly, whatever, there was just a peace. There was just a calm that descended upon us. Did our troubles go away? Nope. Right? Did, did the, the, the pressures of, of finances and grades go? Nope. But we changed because God's word changed us. And having changed us, we then face that stress, face those exams, face those papers with a fresher sense of God's presence. That's what I pray for you when you open God's word and you read it. That you, the pressures aren't going to go away. But neither is God's word. That's why Peter says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, have you tasted of his goodness? The only way you taste of his goodness in, in an experiential way is by opening the book and to read it. And, to, and even to say, Lord, I don't understand this, but you have promised me enlightenment and illumination and understanding if I open myself to you. Peter is doing here what any good pastor does when he says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. He is simply encouraging his congregation to give serious consideration as to whether or not they have experienced the goodness of the Lord. And he is confident, as am I, that the answer is, yes, we have. Good. Now prove it. Do it. <laughs> Read, consume that word the way an infant would consume milk. And I love the allusion to Psalm 34, 8 here. Especially because it's indeed, if you've tasted the Lord is good, that idea of tasting. Of, there's, a, there's the intellectual side, if you will, of pursuing God through knowledge. But there's also the sense that as we pursue him through knowledge, we experience something. As I described when our brothers, we would read the, recite the word of God to another, we were reading something that was rational and logical, but there was also an experience of God's presence. That's what happens. And Psalm 34, if you know anything about Psalm 34, it's David writes the psalm after he has been in the presence of Absalom, uh, one, of the, one of the kings of the Philistines, rather. And he feigns madness. Because he is fearful of persecution and suffering. And the psalm itself says that one who puts their trust in God will be delivered by God. 
David says in Psalm 34, 6, this poor man cried out to the Lord and he saved him from all his troubles. But the verse that gets me in Psalm 34 is one that occurred to me as I was working through a lot of stuff this past week in my own heart and life. It's in Psalm 34, verse 18, but it starts in verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Why? Why does he do that? Because the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isn't that good? Can you taste that? Because let me tell you, unless you've been brokenhearted, and until you've been brokenhearted, you don't know what that goodness tastes like. You don't know what it is to sort of just sit there and just let that word wash over you and then get into you. Because it tells us that God isn't going to throw us away just because we're going through a tough time. That he cares for us. It also tells us that God expects and anticipates that we will be brokenhearted at times. And that we will be crushed in spirit at times. And that we won't always be able to sort of, life is great. God is good. Praise the Lord. Sometimes it is a sacrifice of praise for a broken heart and a broken and contrite spirit. God's not going to throw you away. <laughs> and by the same token, you're not going to throw God away either. If you belong to him, if he has put his Holy Spirit in your heart, if he has made a deposit of the blood of his son to purchase your redemption, there is nowhere you can run from his presence where his grace, mercy, and loving kindness will not reach out to you and draw you back. The Son of Man came not only to seek and to save that which is lost, he came also to seek and to save those who feel alienated from him because they have not practiced what he has preached. Peter says that's the kind of God that we serve. That's the way we long for and crave for the spiritual milk of the word. That's why we fear him. Our hope in Jesus is strengthened by a daily obedience to the truth. So there's an energizing cycle that takes place here. Having tasted his goodness, we obey his word. Obeying his word leads us to taste his goodness. Obey, taste. Obey, taste. Right? Practice, receive. Practice, receive. And then as you receive, give. There's an old joke. Some of those of you who are musicians or if you grew up in New York City, you know this joke, but it, it fits. You know, newcomer to New York City, goes into central Manhattan, asks a cab driver, hey, buddy, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? You know the answer? Practice, practice, practice. How do we learn the taste of the Lord is good? Practice, practice, practice. You think about that. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that the practice that you call us to is one that Christ enables us to do. That it is your spirit who instills in us the desire to crave for your presence, but also, Lord God, to experience your presence as well. And that our practice is done out of joy and gladness, not out of duty, but out of choice. We ask for this in thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.